Listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, March 31, and what a time to be delivering a budget. It's right before an election. It's coming out of a one in a hundred year pandemic. We've got debt heading towards $1 trillion. There's oil and supply price hikes jacking up the cost of living. You've got homeowners worrying about interest rate rises. Uh, It is a political and economic minefield. So, How did the government go with the budget and will it swing the election result? Let's not underestimate how much people that are living hand to mouth and that are really struggling to pay the bills, how much an extra boost it can actually assist them. In this episode of The Briefing, Annika Smethurst will give her read on the politics of this week's budget and her guess on when the election will actually be. First, here are the headlines and for those, I'm joined by Jan Fran. Yeah, g'day, Tom. We're going to start today in northern New South Wales, where sadly 27,000 people have had what can only be described as a sleepless night. Um, They're under evacuation orders. As we record this on Thursday morning, 20 orders are still in place. It's an absolute shocker for people who were smashed a month ago. So the Wilsons River at Lismore has peaked at 11.4 metres overnight, which is an absolute shocker because that's nearly a metre over the town levee, which is why there's major flooding again. Yeah, and over the last two days, the SES has said that it's had 3,600 calls for assistance. There is some good news here. Um, The floodwaters are beginning to recede and things do seem to be easing. But you have to remember these guys up in northern New South Wales, they were hit by a massive flood in February. They're only just recovering from that. So to have this happen again is really awful. And there's been anger again about the messaging from the SES, particularly in Lismore, um, where people were told they could go back to their homes only to be given another evacuation order. And Byron Bay is really copping at this time. It managed to avoid the worst of the flooding last time around, but now the main street has been underwater. Uh, It all happened in the middle of the night, the night before last, completely um, putting people right on edge and devastating the town. Some people saying it's the worst flash flooding they've seen in Byron. Overseas now, and Russia has been accused of intensifying its bombardment on the Ukrainian city of Cherniv. This is despite claims of Russia saying that it would draw back in peace talks. This is yet another confirmation that Russia always lies. And they are saying about the reducing intensity, they actually have increased the intensity of strikes. So that's the mayor of Cherniv on CNN. Uh, Russia also said it would be reducing attacks on Kiev, but Ukraine says they're still striking the city's suburbs. A Ukrainian defence spokesman has confirmed that there have been signs of troop movements away from the two cities. Russia's defence ministry has said that its forces are, are regrouping near both of those cities to focus on other areas and to complete what it calls the quote-unquote liberation of the Donbass region in the east. So that does seem to be a change in focus for the Russians that they're now talking about liberating Donbass as their mission where it had appeared they were trying to take over the whole country. So um, you can interpret that as a positive development. Interestingly, tonight in our parliament, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, is going to speak. So That's going to be pretty interesting, possibly even more interesting than Anthony Albanese's budget reply speech. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's addressed US Congress, he's addressed, you know, countries like Germany. And now it's our turn at about 5.30pm um, on Thursday. Uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time is when he's supposed to be addressing our parliament. And yeah, as you say, it is going to be welcomed by both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese. However, I think Scott Morrison might welcome it a little bit more because Albanese is going to give his budget reply a mere two hours after Zelensky speaks. So Zelensky's a really magnetic speaker. Mm. And you wonder, will he eclipse Albanese? <laughs> So's Albo, come on. And Scott Morrison, their Prime Minister, has come under fire for leaving renters out of the budget and telling them, essentially, to buy a house. Yeah, he was grilled about this by Ali Langdon on Nine yesterday. Check this out. People who are buying houses are renters and ensuring that more renters can buy their own home and get the security of home ownership. This is one of the key focuses of this budget. Right, so he was asked a question by Ali Langdon about the pressure on renters, specifically and how he would alleviate that, and effectively said the best way to alleviate rental stress is to buy a home, as you heard him say there. The obvious point that I think he's missing is that when you're getting jammed for massive rent, it's a lot harder to save for a house and um, quite painful to watch housing prices run away from you. Yeah, that's right. Um, there was one expert at the University of New South Wales that I saw talk about this. He said that 30% of low-income people on the private rental market don't have $500 in savings for emergencies, let alone that 5% that you need for a deposit to get a home loan. So... You know, there's a bunch of people probably listening to Scott Morrison say, don't rent, buy a house, and thinking, how am I going to do that, especially with the rising cost of living? So the other fire that the Prime Minister's trying to put out is the one started by outgoing Liberal Senator Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells. She claimed that he's not fit to be Prime Minister, amongst a bunch of other things. Here's how he's responded. I understand that Connie is disappointed. I would strongly encourage her to take any any matters up with the party organisation. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, not sure how else he was going to respond to that one, just given how explosive her speech was in Parliament and how so, I suppose, well-timed on her mm. part, delivering it just hours after Josh Frydenberg handed down his budget. She essentially blames him for her impossible position when it comes to her pre-selection for the Senate. She is on the New South Wales Senate ticket, but uh, it has been pushed way down and, and, and won't be re-elected. So is effectively on the way out and she's not taking any prisoners. An autocrat, a bully who has no moral compass. Yeah, interesting that his response was that she should tank uh, matters up with the party organisation. The key problem she had with him was that he had overruled the rank and file members on their pre-selections in a number of New South Wales seats. So he's essentially dominating the party organisation to install the candidates he and Alex Hawke want to install. And that was a, a really key thrust of what she was saying. So I don't think his response will go down that well. And Hillsong is losing its foothold in the United States. The New York Times is reporting today that in the last two weeks, Hillsong has lost nine of its 16 American church campuses. This is as the fallout from founder Brian Houston's resignation continues. Yeah, so one of them is a guy called Terry Christ. He's a fifth generation pastor in Phoenix. Um, he brought six churches in two states into the Hillsong fold and last week, he was one of the people that took his churches out. We cannot continue 
in our global family as much as we love it. Yeah, he's not the only one. There's uh, the lead pastor of Hillsong in Atlanta, a man named Sam Collier. He made the same decision. There's also a branch in Kansas City, which quietly separated from Hillsong about two weeks ago. And all of this comes after an internal investigation found that Houston behaved inappropriately towards two women. Yeah, and so we did a a briefing on this earlier in the week explaining the whole story. And one of the key questions was, will this be a turning point that sees the decline of Hillsong or will it continue or will it still grow because the church is bigger than Houston? And clearly what we're seeing here is with a number of churches moving away that this is really hurting Hillsong and its overseas efforts, which had been growing enormously. And more than one billion people, that's right, billion with a B people, have farewelled Shane Warne. So there were over 50,000 who were live at the MCG for the Spin Kings Memorial. Everyone else, of course, from around the world watched on their television screens. Yeah, and I was one of them. I just sort of flicked it on going, oh, I've got to check out a bit of Warnie's farewell. And then I ended up sitting on the couch bawling my eyes out. It was really, really emotional. So they're all the huge names in attendance, you know, mostly Australian cricket greats who are still alive, as well as some of the international greats like Brian Lara. I definitely see the king. And then there were tributes from big names like Russell Crowe, Eric Banner, Greg Norman, Kelly Slater, Chris Martin, Elton John, Ed Sheeran, and Hugh Jackman. Man, he sucked the marrow out of life. And that was all very impressive, but it was when his family spoke. It was just so full on. Here's part of what his dad, Keith, said. Mate, your mother and I cannot imagine a life without you. You've been taken too soon and our hearts are broken. And then his brother, and this is where I started to fall apart, Jan. It was just so emotional and so beautiful, including um, then his three children getting up, Jackson, Brooke, and here's a bit of what Summer said. You always wanted to be around us, and that is something that I took for granted, (laughs) thinking that you were always going to be around. (sighs) I really am going to miss you, Dad. We sort of opened this story saying that one billion people were tuning in to watch this funeral, but you kind of forget that Shane Warne was also a dad, you know? He was someone's dad, he was someone's brother, he was someone's son, and, you know, they're grieving in a very different way to to everyone else. No wonder you got emotional when you heard from his family. They're always the ones that just, you know, they they hit you right in the guts. Mm. And I guess the, the overriding sense was that he was a happy, joyful person and that he was just constantly pouring out that zest for life on everyone around him, including all those big names, but his family and friends, it felt like he was still a massive presence in their life, despite how busy and wonderful and wild his global life was. Yeah, he'll still have, you know, a presence here in Australia, I think, forever. But there was a, a reveal at the end of the ceremony, the Great Southern Stand, officially now been renamed the Shane Warne Stand. All right, coming up, we'll talk with Annika Smethurst about the budget along with Antoinette Latouf. So, Antoinette, how would you have liked to have been the treasurer over the last few years? Oh, geez. I mean, maybe I'm being too generous, but it's been a tough gig, a pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the petrol prices, inflation. I don't want to give the bloke a free pass, but I <laughs> I certainly don't think this is what he signed up for or what any leader in the world over the past couple of years signed up for. Totally. And all heading into an election 
in a month, basically. So yeah, very interesting time for a budget. So we're going to cut through the politics of it with Annika Smethurst. And she is a Walkley Award-winning political reporter at The Age, the author of The Accidental Prime Minister, and also a regular contributor here at The Briefing. And she joins us now to not only talk about the budget, but whether she reckons Scott Morrison, this accidental leader, has any chance of winning this election. Annika, thanks so much for joining us. This has been framed as the cost of living budget. I'm sure um, Friday is loving those headlines, but is that just spin that makes people feel good, but actually has little impact because the relief is actually quite modest, very short-lived, and the deeper causes of inflation, oil prices, supply constraints, are things they can't even control. But it is important. Let's not underestimate how much people that are living hand-to-mouth and that are really struggling to pay the bills, how much an extra boost it can actually assist them. Same with the tax cut. You know, it might only be 400 bucks. You go, am I going to notice that over the year? People do. You know, there's a lot of people out there that this will become a real relief to. As you say, though, the fact that it's not sort of baked in long-term It's what we call a handout. It is money um, before an election to really entice people, I guess, to keep voting for the coalition. Now, that's not how it's been framed. It is called this one-off cost of living tax offset. Obviously, that's going to be a huge issue for both Labor and the coalition going in. But there are structural problems here. And because of the pandemic, the budget, there is more money than we thought. The budget still isn't in great nick and whether handing out money in a short-term way is going to actually help people in the future, I think that's a big question we need to ask. And you've covered loads of budgets, Annika, and all the things the government wants you to focus on are in the speech and some of the sort of nasty bits or less popular bits are usually hidden deep in the budget papers or other things that aren't there at all. For example, on climate policy, there was no new spending announced to help achieve the government's net zero carbon emissions goal. Do you see that as a problem? And what are some of the other things you don't think they want us talking about? Look, inevitably, there's going to be cuts. And I always find it interesting because not all programs are great. You know, I sit there on budget day and look through the books and people go, oh, this program's been cut and this program's been cut. Sometimes things just don't work. You know, the government pitched up an idea. Um, a few years ago, there was this great scheme to get nannies. Working mums get nannies. The structure wasn't there. So sometimes you do have to get rid of them. So not all cuts are bad, but it's not just the cuts. When they're getting rid of bad programs, it's almost a good thing. It's as you say, when things aren't just talked about. Now, I guess I hate to be cynical here, but if you look at Australia's voting pattern over the last sort of decade or two. Every year we're told the climate, it's going to be a really big election issue and it never is. In fact, you know, last time Bill Shorten offered a much bigger plan than the government in terms of doing something about climate change, more ambitious goals and he didn't win. So electorally, it's not necessarily always popular. It does seem that this budget It's a bit of a labour budget for a coalition, focus on women's empowerment, um, domestic violence, tax relief, you know, an increase in intake of refugees from Afghanistan, as well as the the Ukrainian refugees. So have they stolen Labor's thunder here? There is a a sense of a labour budget, but I do also think these are the times in which we live, you know, Mm. cost of living is up. People do want more services now after the pandemic. They want better health. They want better education, things like this. So it is really a budget of our time. What is interesting though is this is Josh Frydenberg. He's a Liberal Party treasurer. The Liberal Party have always prided themselves on stronger economic management. There's more money to spend. Yes, there's almost $100 billion 
dollars more. Not really from anything. It's kind of because they underestimated how much commodities would cost and they've spiked and record number of people employed. Mm. It's not really through anything major, I guess, that the government have done. They would say that the jobs figures that help them, that's all being spent. You know, it's not like, oh, we're a little bit ahead, so we're going to put some money away for a rainy day. They're spending tens of billions of dollars at a time when inflation is already high. So definitely not something you would usually see from a coalition government, Mm. but that's a combination of two things, the times we live in and, of course, the looming election. So the other thing that was going on um, in Parliament on Tuesday night, you've got Frido, I'm going to stop calling him that actually, it's easy to say, but <laughs> the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, over in the Senate, Faravanti Wells, the Senator from New South Wales who's been dropped on the Senate ticket, absolutely unleashed. Let's just remind ourselves what she said about Scott Morrison in the chamber. Morrison is not fit to be Prime Minister, lacking the moral compass and having no conscience. His actions conflict with his portrayal as a man of faith. He has used his so-called faith as a marketing advantage. Yeah, tell us what you really think. Um, (laughs) But this is just another person from the coalition camp. There was, of course, Barnaby Joyce, infamous Gladys Berejiklian texts, and former Liberal MP Julia Banks. And how damaging is this for the PM? Look, I can't imagine his office would have been thrilled She's a conservative. Now, if you look at Scott Morrison, he's actually dabbled in both camps. Back when, I guess, um, he was first trying to get a seat, he sat in the moderate camp. He's sort of then been the accepted candidate for his seat from the conservative side. In fact, it was Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells who initially said when they couldn't find anybody for the seat of Cook years ago, look, it's not our preferred candidate, but we will accept him and, you know, there was a trade-off somewhere else. They've never liked each other, the pair, that's for sure. Um, I don't think anybody's surprised personally that works in Parliament of how she feels about him. It's different when you say it though, you know, we've all worked in workplaces, we all know who doesn't like everybody and trust me, I don't know anybody that works in a workplace where we love everybody. Standing up in the Senate and saying it mm. on the public record, which will be in Hansard for life before an election and effectively handing Labor a grab, you know, that they can use in an advertising campaign is incredible. Now, the fact that these things are being aired, this dirty laundry, it really just helps one person, and that's Anthony Albanese. Well, it all fits the same narrative that Scott Morrison doesn't have a backbone, and in Barnaby Joyce's words, rearranges the truth, that it's all spin. So if they were sort of random different complaints... It might not have such an impact, but they they all do for a very a very consistent narrative. I think that's the problem. And initially, when, when there were some of these issues, like his problem with women, or you know, perceived problem with women, however you see it, one off they weren't problematic. Even the trip to Hawaii, it really annoyed people about three years ago, but it could have been seen as a single sort of issue that we've all moved on from because politics moves really quickly. When it becomes a pattern of behaviour. I think it's really problematic. Going into the last election, we've got to remember, no one really knew who Scott Morrison was. He'd just become prime minister months before. He really was a one-man show. He didn't show a lot of ministers. It was a really presidential-style campaign. And that kind of worked for him because he didn't have any baggage. Bill Shorten, on the other hand, had a lot of baggage from the Gillard and the Rudd years when he was there with the two mobile phones sort of changing allegiances and things like this. And that really stuck. People will say at voting booths that they'd come up to Labor candidates and say, look, I want to vote for you guys, but I'm really not sold on that Bill Shorten. 
that's a huge problem for the coalition that now these patterns of behaviours are emerging and so many of his colleagues have been caught saying things about him just before an election, it's really going to bite. Well, on that election, we still don't have an election date. 21st of May is the absolute latest it can be held. What are you hearing? Oh, I was up there yesterday trying to get a little bit of gossip on this. The current front runner of a figure is the 14th, the week before. You don't want to be seen to being trying to rinse every week out of your prime ministership <laughs> in case you lose, just getting one more week at Kirribilli or the Lodge. Hmm. So I think it will be the week before that. There's a minimum time they have to have on the campaign. So he actually has potentially another week or two. He doesn't have to call it tomorrow or before the weekend. I'm told he has a big speech in Canberra, I think next Tuesday or Wednesday. And it's very interesting because to call an election, you have to be in Canberra because you have to go and see the Governor Mm. General. So there is a thought that whilst in town for this speech next week, so I think we'll see another week before the election's called, but everybody's in election mode by now on. You know, it's just a, um, a formality now, I would say. Nobody's actually doing any work other than one thing, and that's all trying to get re-elected. And is your view the same, that polling will tighten, but Labor will probably still win? I do think it'll tighten incredibly. It really, you know, we look at these big, how Australian are feeling in, in polls, and it, it's very different on a case-by-case basis. In Queensland, the coalition have a lot of seats and they're still looking quite strong there, really. So that's a really key part. I know the coalition are confident they might actually be able to get a seat or two in Victoria, which is usually not a strong state for them. Same in Tasmania. There's a lot of other seats that they're looking to lose, those inner city sort of liberal seats that are being targeted by independents, which I think raises one more interesting issue. Will either of the major parties win? We know they're both on the nose, actually. There's all this talk about more minorities. Now, that's always overplayed. We're not mm. going to get a bunch of cross pinches. But you don't actually need too many for it to be a minority government. Now, what I know about minority governments is nobody wants to lead in them. You know, they're terribly difficult. You saw the sort of chaos around the Gillard years. Nothing gets Nothing done. Gets Nothing. Look, they will say that during the Gillard year, they passed all this legislation more than, and they did. They did really well with that, but it is incredibly difficult when, as opposed to just getting your side in line, which is hard enough in politics, having to negotiate with all these individuals is incredibly difficult. It looks chaotic. And sometimes you hear people from the major parties go, I'd prefer the other side dealt with that than us. So that's another sort of looming thing. Will Labor or the Liberal Party win? Sure. It's not that. It's how much control a random group of crossbenchers could have. Mm, more chaos in Parliament, just what we need. <laughs> that was the one and only Annika Smethurst. Key takeouts for you, Antoinette? I think the fact that uh, in this budget they've been deliberately quiet about climate change spending and reaching that net zero emissions by 2050. And that seems deliberate because hip pocket concerns historically win elections. And that's a lesson both sides have learned. And I just reckon, you know, maybe I hope that after 18 months of the floods and the fires that we've had, we'd stop being short-sighted and care more. So look, I hope Annika and what history tells us will be wrong for this election. Mm. And also that Albo tackles it more directly in his budget reply. Yeah, I think for me, It was a very sensible straight bat budget from the coalition, so they're not going to create any big political problems for themselves. Mm. Labor will do the same. It'll be a very sensible reply. So I don't think the budget is going to have a big impact on the election. Mm. I think we're going to keep heading the way we've been heading. I think the trickier budgets will actually be the next few. Mm -hmm. 
At some point, people are going to stop being as generous as you were about the challenges they've had and start to look at the net debt going up towards a trillion dollars and go, hang on a minute, someone's got to do something. So I think the tough decisions will will be probably in the next budget Mm. for the next government, whoever that is. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be future generations who'll have to deal with both climate change and this growing debt. So yeah, good luck with that. Tomorrow on The Briefing, an amazing interview with an Australian woman, Kylie Moore-Gilbert, who was locked up in an Iranian prison for over two years. She's out now and she's telling her story and we're going to bring it to you here on The Briefing. Listener.